Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to another episode of Africa's a Country Talk. I'm Will Shorkey, joined as always by Sean Jacobs, who's in Brooklyn, New York. I'm in Johannesburg. And what you're watching at the moment is Africa's a Country Talk, which is our weekly talk and interview show, which streams every single Tuesday at 5 p.m. if you're in Dakar, 6 p.m. if you're in Harare, and 7 p.m. if you're in Nairobi. And as always, the show is produced by Antoinette Engel, who is in Cape Town, South Africa. And Cape Town's just experienced a, a pretty devastating fire. And we'll share some details towards the end of the show of how you can help rebuild the UCT as African Studies Library. Um, but first, we have a show to do for you today. And this is episode 35, um, which means that we were measuring it in age. We can't be members of the ANC Youth League anymore. So that means we're old. <laughs> well, it's been like, I think I've, I, I know there's like people who are, th thanks, Will. I know there are people who are like 40-year-old ANC Youth League members, which I don't know what a 40-year-old. Um, you, you, youth is a mindset, Sean. <laughs> okay, not, not, not for me anymore. Okay, so today's show is on my favorite subject. I think it wills also uh, football um, on two things. First, on the foreign entanglement of South African football with English football um, during colonialism and apartheid. And some of this story might actually surprise you. And then if we have time, uh, we'll talk about the news that is upending the football world <laughs> since the weekend. We'll talk about that in a quick minute. Um, so that's all I'm going to say. Our main guest is um, Chris Bolzman, a South African sports scholar. Chris has just published a journal article on the great English footballer uh, Stanley Matthews. I've forgotten that he, I think he was the first winner of the Ballon d'Or, um, who, by the way, had a long association with South African football. Um, previously, Chris published research articles about white professional football in South Africa, as well as about the 1899 tour by a team of 15 black South African footballers uh, to Britain and also to France. Um, and the little part of that, I, I'm not going to give it away, but there's a, he, we'll ask him to say something about that tour because there's a little detail about that tour that's, that's later on very interesting for South African political history. Chris is based at California State University, Northridge, where he specializes in the social history of sport. We'll say a little bit more about his biography later. Tony Caron uh, will be our other guest. He teaches um, on the politics of global soccer in the graduate program in international affairs at the New School. Actually, he teaches with me on that course. We've been teaching <laughs> that course for a couple of years. Um, Tony is an editorial lead at Al Jazeera Plus. And before that, he spent 15 years at Time Magazine, where he was a senior editor. Tony happens to also be a homeboy. He's also from Cape Town. so. Um, we brought Tony along for the ride because we thought Tony might have something to say about <laughs> watching football in 1970s Cape Town. And I know Tony has a lot to say about the debate about this other topic that we wanted to, to talk about. But before that, uh, if you missed our show last week, we discussed whether the moment is right for South Africa's left to start a new party. Our guests were now ready, who's a South African doctoral student at NYU. We had Tasneem Isop, who's a researcher at the Society Work and Poverty Institute at Bits University. And we also had Mazibuko Jaha, who is an activist, trainer, and popular educator, who's also serving on the Amandla Editorial Collective. And Amandla Magazine, which is an old South African left-wing magazine, is actually a magazine we recently just started a partnership with. And Niall's piece, which sparked this whole debate, which was, does a South Africa needs a new left party? 
was republished as part of our inaugural partnership with Amandla. So watch the space, check out Amandla, see what new articles come from that partnership, as well as this ongoing conversation about whether or not South Africa needs a new left party and clips from that episode are on our YouTube channel. But as usual, check out our Patreon, as well as episodes from our archive. So in a few minutes, we're going to welcome our first guest. But Sean, what's been on your mind this week? I mean, we've, we've already touched on what's been on everyone's mind this week. And backstage just now, we'd already began some of that conversation. But this whole Super League nonsense, <laughs> what, what's, what do you think? What's your, your, your brief assessment of what it all means? I think we might have lost Sean, but I can't tell. Um, apologies for that, everyone. Seems that we have lost Sean. Hopefully, everything is is all right in in New York. I might have to play the role of his translator again. He might have to send me things via WhatsApp, and I'll have to sort of communicate that to everyone. Um, but until we get Sean back on the screen, I'll just go ahead and tell everyone what I think about the Super League. It's funny, just before the show started, I wore my Tottenham Hotspur jersey. I was going to make a very bold announcement to Daniel Levy and the club that this would be my last day wearing the jersey. Um, but I decided I was going to not have a meltdown. And I think that we'll get to the conversation about what the Super League possibly means for football. But I think one thing that is interesting to think about the Super League, to think about how much uproar it's caused around the world is that in a way what is happening in football is really the development of a long globalization process that began with the formation of the Premier League in the early 1990s and as much as we talk on the one hand about a longing for a return to football as a more communal affair as something that was more geographically rooted something which you did in your community you supported your local club the truth is that the pandora's box of globalization has kind of been unlocked and there is no sort of returning to this nostalgic past of small clubs and we unfortunately do live in an era of big clubs globalization and money in sport so as far as what this means for the future of football it's hard to say it's hard to say if this is going to be the last attempts uh, from super clubs to entrench the power in the sport if it's going to be possible to reorganize the sport so that it's more egalitarian especially considering the fact that sport often mirrors society and if society remains the way it is now then the possibility of wanting to reorganize sport so that it's more equal more just and fair are limited so it's it's kind of yeah the sort of thing that leaves you in a powerless and helpless position where you're not even sure what you can do because sure you might stop supporting one of these clubs if they don't pull out of the super league but then if they do pull out of the super league football stays the same and the way it currently is now isn't any better so i'm looking forward to the discussion that we have later about what the future of sport might mean but I'm also skeptical that sport can be meaningfully transformed in a way that really changes the underlying arrangements because those underlying arrangements will still be in place so long as 
how societies organized around profiteering, around money and around greed. And I think when you reflect on, for example, the way globalization has changed sport, it has changed it for the bets on the one hand, because I think it's a good thing that we now see teams that are, are comprised of different nationalities, different races, and so on. But how do you retain sports cosmopolitanism uh, without sort of making it something that's soulless and lacks roots? So Sean is back, which I'm good to hear. Uh, I, I would guess that FIFA conspired to have Sean taken off the air because they knew that he was coming ready with the hot takes. I had um, fire. They, they, had they, fire. They, they, they had fire. They had to kill me. But anyway, I'm going to save it for later when, when Tony when Tony comes around. Just, now, I don't know what happened. I don't know if you, you guys may have heard me scream something like, yo, did somebody kill the internet? It's what I shouted. <laughs> They, they did to prevent you. They tried to censor you, man. They tried to censor you. I don't know what that was about. We're just, we're just going like to say that we know what you're doing. And I had it. Yeah. Anyway, we're, 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 we've got our guests. We, maybe we should, we, should we, we should move on to our guests. Do you want to introduce the guest? Absolutely. So just before that, a, rem a reminder to hit like below and subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our Patreon or donate on our website directly. We need all the help we can get, especially if FIFA is going to keep conspiring to try and take Sean off the air. Uh, so to, to come to today's program, as we said, we want to talk about the historical entanglement of South African football with English football, as well as to try and understand what this tells us about politics and sports. And our guest, Chris Bolzman, is perfectly placed to talk about it because he's researched this history. He's currently based at California State University, Northridge, specializing in the social history of sport and together with Peter Leggi, Chris co-edited South Africa and the Global Game, Football, Apartheid and Beyond in 2010, as well as Africa's World Cup, critical reflections on play, patriotism, spectatorship and space in South Africa in 2013, amongst many other books. So Chris, first of all, thank you very much for bringing on the show. Um, let's maybe start with a question that's a little bit personal uh, in South Africa. When people think about football, or as we say here, we've adopted the American terminology, soccer, um, people ordinarily think about it as a black sport. So, you know, when there's a white guy who's interested in the history of, of soccer in South Africa, people are often surprised to see that. So maybe start by telling us what your relationship is to it, how you came to have an interest in researching this stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, good morning from Los Angeles. I'm really uh, pleased to be uh, part of this discussion. Um, I think uh, when people think of research projects and what people are researching, um, very often we start with the personal. We start with things that have impacted on our lives. And uh, we look at uh, issues that, uh, that we're personally interested in. And I um, am South African and I grew up in uh, Pretoria. I grew up in Pretoria in the late 1970s, um, I started primary school in 1978, and one of the first games they taught us, and I went to a whites-only primary school, Hatfield Primary School, one of the first games they taught us was uh, was soccer, and um, I absolutely fell in love with the game of soccer, and um, carried on playing it um, throughout primary school, joined local uh, whites-only soccer clubs, and then um, went to high school, um, as a 13, 12, 13-year-old 13 uh, boy went to Pretoria Boys High, and Pretoria Boys High is 
famous uh, for being a rugby playing school and to my horror that meant I couldn't play soccer any longer and um, I tried playing uh, rugby for one season and I absolutely hated it. I wasn't very good at it and I was in the scrum and for anybody who knows anything about rugby, being in the scrum is not necessarily fun. And as a result, I continued to play soccer for my local club. And uh, what would happen uh, during the week, um, during the, when, when we weren't training, I would go play pickup games with groups of uh, black soccer players who were using the pitch. These were uh, uh, black workers of local uh, in the local restaurant industry in the neighborhood where I lived. And as a 14, 15 year old uh, white South African kid, I got to meet black men for the first time as equals. In other words, equals on a soccer field where that meant uh, we played as equals, we won and we lost together. And my first experience of uh, Pretoria's townships, Attridgeville and Mamelodi, was playing with the Hatfield All-Stars. Now the Hatfield All-Stars was this black uh, soccer team with this young white goalkeeper. And um, that was my experience of, of, of apartheid South Africa. And one has to ask questions and this can't be normal in that we play in a uh, we play in segregated teams we live in segregated uh, suburbs we go to segregated schools but soccer introduced me to the majority of south africans in a in a, in a, in a way and that's why i am so interested in in football in south africa because i think uh, when I look at um, some of the important research that is, uh, you know, some of the research that we lean on, and I think of um, Eric Hobsbawm and Terence Ranger, their fabulous edited book um, uh, called Invented Traditions, I think is very useful here. And when I talk, or when they speak about invented traditions, we speak of how uh, an occurrence becomes the tradition, becomes the norm, becomes the history. And when we think of South African sport, very often we think of white people play rugby and black people play soccer. And I think my personal experience, and I think many South Africans' uh, experiences, that that's not actually true. I think uh, many um, black South Africans grew up playing rugby, as many white South Africans grew up playing soccer. And that's often overlooked. And um, that's why I'm particularly interested in looking at this at this history and, in a way, rewriting some of these uh, some of these concerns that I've raised. Mm -hmm. So just for um, by the way, I also played I also played rugby in, in in high school, and that was partly because I was I was just terrible at football. Even though I played I played <laughs> lots of pick up, pick up football, and football is like the game I love the most. But I wasn't mm -hmm. I've never yeah. been good at it. But there's one thing that I think you you sort of touch on here, which is, and it might be useful for well, you're talking here about kind of like the extent to which football was popular among white South Africans. I think a lot of people don't know that. And maybe, so if you could do maybe two things just at the outset, for people who don't know South African football, can you just give like the broad outlines of South African football, almost like a kind of a highlight reel? Um, and I'm sort of giving an impossible task here at the beginning to tell the history <laughs> of more than 120, I think it's way more than that, of like football history mm -hmm. in like a few minutes. So kind of just like the, the main highlights. And I think this key point is really to, to the, 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 there was like a white South African football union. I think that's the, is that the earliest established national football union in South Africa, right? 
Mm-hmm. That's correct. Well, very, very quickly, um, I think we need to look at when football was codified. In other words, when the rules of football were agreed on. So football as soccer, as we know today, association football, which of course is where the term soccer originates from. Those rules are written in 1863. Rugby union, the rugby that's played in South Africa, those rules were written in 1871. But in South Africa, we have some of the earliest references to football. Now, these are games of rugby and soccer that are combined, that the rules haven't necessarily been agreed yet. We have these from the early uh, 1860s. But in terms of football clubs being established, we have football clubs, being soccer clubs being established in Cape Town, in uh, in Durban in the 1880s. And indeed, you're correct, the uh, South African Football Association is established in uh, in 1892, it's one of the first football associations outside of the uh, British Isles. And if you look at at FIFA's um, oldest members, in many in many instances, this football association is older than these uh, the, these members themselves. South Africa, actually, this white football, importantly, it's a whites only football association. They actually joined FIFA in. Uh, 1910, and by this stage, they'd had a long uh, relationship with the English FA uh, in London. Of course, they were um, they were honorary members. So there's this long entanglement with South African uh, football with and English football. But of course, these clubs that are emerging in the 1880s, and this is, I think, we can tie it into the super the the, the Super League discussion. The first thing you want to do is when you establish a team, is you want to play against another team, obviously, and in many ways. Some of the first uh, tours to and from South Africa um, are, of course, rugby and cricket, but also football. So you have, for example, in 1897, you have the Corinthians Football Club, which, of course, is an amateur football club based in London. They actually tour uh, outside of Europe for the first time when they visit South Africa. They visit on a three-month trip and they play all across the country. They only play against white opposition, but we do have black spectators who are watching this. And um, they would classify this as these missionaries of empire. In other words, they're taking the, the game of football to, to the colonies. But the argument um, I've made in some recent publications around the Corinthians is that they did this because there was good money to be made from these football tours. And these football tours generated significant profits for the tourists themselves, but of course also for the local um, associations because these local associations were charging uh, entrance fees uh, for uh, uh, for spectators and interesting and importantly, differential prices on the basis of race. That meant if you were a black spectator, you got to sit in the, the worst seats right in the sun, but you also paid the lowest price. So uh, football tours are absolutely crucial. And um, this continues all through the uh, through the 20th century. Uh, England and or Britain and South African football is, 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 is entwined. If we look at some of the um, South African players, and initially these were white players, before World War II, uh, the Second World War, um, the majority of foreign players in British football outside of the British Isles and Ireland were South Africans. So we have dozens and dozens of South Africans playing in British uh, uh, league football. And uh, this is a concern for the local association in, in South Africa because their best talent is going abroad. And then in the 1930s is when the first sort of black black football clubs are being formed and black black in terms of South African football, that's when that's when you see like the emergence of sort of black organized football, let's say like at a national level, or does the national level for blacks come a little later? I mean, we're talking in terms no, of segregated football. I would actually I'd actually argue that it's much earlier. I think uh, uh, authors have argued that it was the sort of 
the 1915-1916, but we have evidence from uh, the 1880s and the 1890s that black South Africans are playing uh, organized football. And the example that I use is, of course, the the famous 1899 tour of a group of 15 black South Africans uh, from essentially from Bloemfontein who go to Britain just before the outbreak of the South African War and play um, roughly 50, just under 50 games across uh, across Britain uh, and um, are pitted against the elite clubs of the day. And they lose basically every single match. Uh, they're laughed at and they're ridiculed, um, but they're pioneers. They're absolutely football pioneers. And this is unfortunately has just been ignored in South African sporting history has been incorrectly referenced the year for example and these were groundbreakers they were absolutely if we talk about a globalization of football South African footballs and black South African footballs were at the forefront of this uh, this, this proto-globalization in an era of, uh, of of colonialism of course why was that by the way I mean I'm, I've, I've, I mean I was reading your paper and I was struck by this because it's not only this tour of black footballers in 1899 but shortly after that a south african team travels all the way to south america they go to mm -hmm. argentina so in the early 20th century how did it end up that south africa of all places led the early globalization of football what was it about the nature of south africa and the country it was becoming at the time that meant that it was well placed to to lead this effort of making football international well, I think, uh, as, I, as I've said, because of the organized nature of um, South African football through its various associations, through its national association, they had close contact with the English Football Association, which meant that they could organize tours to and from each country. So uh, the, you have these Corinthian football tours coming to, to, to South Africa. You also have English FA representative teams. Now, this is the, the amateur team or the second team, if you like. They come as early as 1910 to South Africa. Um, this tour um, to to uh, South America in 1906 coincides with the tour of the Rugby Springboks to to Britain at the same time, and the Rugby Springboks basically win all their matches in 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 Britain on this tour. But so do the South Africans in South America. They lose one game in Argentina, but they basically win all the games. They beat a Brazilian uh, uh, eleven, and some Brazilian authors suggest that this is the first Brazil eleven, if you like. I mean, there are questions around that, but I think what is happening here, which is often overlooked in South African sport and soccer history in particular, is that there's a class dynamic emerging here. Right. In other words, in um, South African schools, now I'm not talking only about white schools, I'm also talking about the mission schools, uh, Zonoblom, Lovedale, Health Town, St. Matthews, etc. Soccer is frowned upon because many of these teachers are coming from elite schools or elite training backgrounds in uh, Britain where rugby is the, pre the, the preferred sport. And that's why a, a school such such as uh, bishops in, in in Cape Town is where you have the emergence of rugby and and rugby means such a uh, uh, or Cape Town means such a hot hotbed for uh, rugby in uh, South Africa is because of the schooling systems uh, and here we have these uh, successful rugby players representing a certain class of a new white South African and that is then pushed as opposed to this more working class or uh, lower middle class white South African who's just as successful as, uh, as their rugby counterparts. And this is this idea of this an invention of a tradition, this inventing a tradition that South African, white South Africans are made for this frontier, this, this rugged game called rugby as opposed to, as opposed to soccer or, 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 or the beautiful game as such. 
Um, just be, before we move on, I kind of wanted to, you mentioned that there's a team called Corinthians. Um, mm -hmm. it's, touring, it's touring South Africa. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you could, like, who is this team? Because I, I've seen this name a couple of times and I'm also kind of curious, like, like, who is this team? I know after them, some Scottish teams come to South Africa in the early part mm -hmm. of the 20th century, Aberdeen, I think, Motherwell. And then just a whole bunch of teams start coming to South Africa kind of regularly, right? Almost every three mm -hmm. to four years and just mm -hmm. tour there. And um, we, this is just the early part. We're not even talking after the Second World War, but just for like that mm. early part of the story. Mm. Well, the Corinthians were this amateur team, a scratch team. In other words, it was like a, a pickup game, a pickup club of some of the best English footballers in southern in southern England. And the reason, the, the reasoning behind the establishment of the Corinthians, and they were established in 1882, the same year as the establishment of the Natal Football Association. So we can see that the the, the dates are quite similar. The Corinthians are established as a team to challenge Scottish football. In other words, the Scots are the are the, are the leaders in, in in British football, and the Corinthians are established as this importantly this amateur team. And these players all come from elite British institutions, obviously uh, Oxford and, uh, and and Cambridge. And their idea is they have this missionary zeal. They wear a white a white shirt. Real Madrid's white shirt comes from uh, uh, the original Corinthians. Corinthians in Sao Paulo is a direct consequence of the Corinthians visiting Brazil in 1910. There are a number of examples of teams called Corinthians all over South Africa during this period. But their, their idea is they're this amateur gentleman. In other words, they would refuse to uh, take penalties if penalties were awarded to them because their argument was that a gentleman doesn't foul another gentleman. And this really annoyed <laughs> the South Africans. This really annoyed the South Africans because the South African referees were blowing these fouls and the uh, Corinthians refused to take these penalties. And they were saying, you're undermining us as, uh, as, as officials. You're, you're, you're bringing these values which are no longer necessarily part of the modern game. And this is the, the early uh, uh, 20th century. So the Corinthians lead the way. But importantly, the Corinthians, their first tour, they win all the games, all their games in 1897. By their final tour to South Africa in 1907, they lose half the games. So they're not necessarily that good anymore. That means uh, the local association cannot... Uh, ask as much money for these uh, uh, teams because they're not very good. So guess what? The Corinthians start going to new markets. They start visiting Canada. They start visiting visiting the United States. They visit Brazil on a number of occasions. They go to new football markets to generate uh, income. So this, so these Corinthians, I think, were, were were groundbreakers, but they weren't necessarily these amateur gentlemen that they made out to be. You referenced the 1920s and 1930s. You're correct, Sean. Um, Aberdeen and um, Motherwell are the first professional sides to visit South Africa before uh, the, the, the Second World War. And what is absolutely central and crucial for the development of black football is that many, well, a number of black South African teams are modeled on uh, Motherwell. And we have teams called, named after Motherwell. And the reason being, is uh, they are these scientific exponents, these new uh, exponents of a new form of football. And uh, South African state start to play this kind of game and start to use these names um, to uh, establish their own sides across across South Africa. So these two, these initial tours are absolutely crucial in solidifying these relations between um, Britain and South African football, British and South African football. To talk about that relationship between British and South African football, what I was fascinated to discover was, especially that early 20th century period, 
the extent to which South African football and its official associations were so attached to, to empire. So thinking back to what you've just spoken about now, about the missionary zeal within, within which some of those early tours happened, how it was just so connected to this project of empire, uh, so the South African Football Association doesn't really want to affiliate to FIFA. It prefers the English FA at some stage. Mm -hmm. It even proposes a British Commonwealth Association. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you wrote in your essay, Safa's Global Engagement. Yeah, exactly. Their own Super League of just, of just the colonies and dominions at that time where everyone would blissfully never take pen penalties and engage in this mm -hmm. gentleman's game. So, I mean, how did it end up being so attached to, I mean, obviously we know why, but I mean, why, especially football, was it important to maintain the, the vision of empire at that period? Well, you, I think we must go back to, to immigration to South Africa. Remember the, the European immigration at the end of the 19th century, uh, of course, primarily from Britain and many, uh, many working class men coming over uh, to South Africa with a, a football knowledge and a football history that they that was exploding in Britain during this during this time. And if you look at some of the the first uh, football clubs in, in in Cape Town, for example, Park Villa. Park Villa is 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 named after Aston Villa because one of the the founders of Aston Villa landed up in uh, Cape Town as a gunmaker. So you have these affinities and these connections from a very early period. South Africa, of course, of all the colonies during this period, so we think of Canada, we think of New Zealand, we think of Australia, their soccer team was by far the strongest of these uh, 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 these colonies. And what the South African uh, Football Association was very keen on trying to establish in the 1930s was what they called a British Empire Football Association. So that would be the British uh, uh, Britain playing against these uh, colonies. I don't think the South Africans necessarily considered that the... Uh, that the empire would no longer be white very, very soon and that they'd have to play against uh, uh, black players. But they were at the forefront of driving this because Britain or the English FA weren't keen to join uh, FIFA in, 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 its, in its founding years and, of course, didn't play in the first two, first three World Cups uh, because of their disdain for the continent, uh, the continent, this disdain for the for, for European football organizers. Who are these French and Swiss um, uh, football officials taking our game away from us? So I think the South Africans fitted in uh, to the English FA because, of course, many of them were British themselves and, and were probably uh, first generation um, white South Africans from, from British heritage. So there's this affinity to, to England from a very early stage. So just not to, because we don't want to, we, the, 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 this is fun and <laughs> we can get stuck in the woods, but this is a long, I mean, we want to get to like what I think is an interesting moment. So after the war um, in South Africa, I would say like, it's like what is almost like uh, about maybe 10, more than 10 years after the war, there's now the beginning of talk about professional football. And so mm -hmm. there's an establishment of a white professional football league in South Africa mm -hmm. in 1959. And then that league is when you start seeing kind of an influx, not, not so much touring anymore, but now many of those British players come to play in that league. And mm -hmm. can you just say a little bit about like, like uh, why, you know, the, the basis on which they play in that league, whether, uh, as I understand, they don't come, they don't sign contracts to be a member of the club. They just come as a guest player. And maybe you could say a little bit about some of these players who are coming to play in this league. Just before the league is established, the South African Football Association is really concerned about the number of, of, of South Africans right. playing in British football. So they're all going over to England to play and Scotland to play professional soccer. 
And as a result, uh, South African entrepreneurs and media men uh, established a whites-only national football league in 1959. And this is to counter this uh, exodus of white South African footballers to, uh, to Britain. As a result of this establishment of this league, you have um, a number of British footballers, um, and we start with some of the first ones, uh, Stanley Matthews, uh, Tom Finney, uh, Billy Wright, and these are all leading English football players of their generation. They all come out and they start as guest players. In other words, they play for one, two, three, four games at a time, and then return to their, um, their home clubs. So they didn't necessarily have uh, any, um, they didn't necessarily have any um, uh, contract. There's Stanley Matthews, of course, uh, a fascinating character. But Stanley Matthews visits South Africa on, 30, on over 30 occasions over a 30-year uh, uh, period. But he's one of the one of these English imports who then helps generate publicity for this whites-only national uh, uh, football league. The football tours that we've uh, touched on, the football tours continue every season. We have football tours. So we have Wolverhampton Wanderers, we have Dundee United, we have Preston North End, we have Will Tottenham Hotspur visit South Africa in 1963, Arsenal visit in 1964, Real Madrid visit in 1964. That was one of the things that surprised me, but we'll finish this story. I want you to at least say something about that Real Madrid thing for people who didn't know that, but continue. Well, the Real Madrid uh, tour is, is interesting, and this is where the National Football League spent um, five years negotiating with Real Madrid, and um, Real Madrid came out for two matches they played in uh, South Africa against the white South African 11, uh, 11. And this side wasn't called South Africa. This side was called the Castle Knights. And if you look at the game, the, the highlight reels, and if you look at their shirts, it was actually the logo of Castle Lager. So Castle Lager was the money behind, or South African breweries, was the money behind uh, the Real Madrid uh, uh, tour to South Africa in 1965. So you have the sponsorship um, way ahead of any other sponsorship around the world. And in, in some ways, South African football is is at the forefront of this new form of football that is going to emerge in the next 10, 15, uh, 15 years. So, yeah, they, they were absolutely crucial. Um, also, just to mention, because I know, Sean, you're a big Arsenal fan. Arsenal also visited in 1964. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. He's like right, well. pulling my leg. He did that on <laughs> No, not today. I, was, I was got in big trouble there. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you're a Liverpool fan. <laughs> <laughs> but say something about, about, um, about Scum, about that team. What, what about them? <laughs> Oh my wow. God. I didn't know it was going to get that bad today, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, these, these, the bottom line is these tours generated significant profits for the clubs and for the South African coffers. And when South Africa is initially um, suspended from FIFA, the White Football Association is suspended from FIFA, this means that these tours cannot, uh, these clubs cannot uh, come visit. And the, the National Football League is instrumental they basically take over the local association in south africa and what they start to do is they start to negotiate with fifa and stanley ross and they suggest for the 1966 world cup which is of course held and won um in england uh the national football league propose entering two sides in other words a black side and a white side and a black side would play against uh what they would classify as black opposition and the white side would play against uh, uh, what they would classify as white opposition. So South Africa are actually, uh, they actually uh, paired in the group with Australia, North Korea, 
and South Korea for qualification for the 1966 World Cup. The dates are scheduled. The games are going to be played. The South African Black Squad, which is uh, trained by Jackie Gibbons, who was a former uh, uh, English football an English footballer, he was putting this team together, and they, in all intents and purposes, were ready to play these games uh, against North Korea and South Korea. But because uh, the South African Football Association was again banned from uh, FIFA, this, uh, this this crazy idea um, was then was then dropped, and of course, subsequently, South Africa was expelled in 1976 from uh, from FIFA. So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's. It's it's a crazy you, crazy wanted, history. You, yeah, I wanted you to say just a little bit because I know we time time is going to run up against us. But I want you to say a little bit sort of that someone like say Stanley Matthews and I know you've written mm. about him and you said that he had this like long association with South Africa. So you have the situation mm. South Africa is suspended now. This is just this is Stanley Matthews actually in Ghana. This is not mm -hmm. Stanley Matthews in in South Africa. But you know he, mm -hmm. as I said at the beginning, he's people forget he was an incredible footballer, right? Dribbler. Oh yeah, kind of a winger. Like just when you see videos of him, I mean, I mentioned yeah. he won the Ballon d'Or. People forget that. Yeah. He, he has this complicated relationship with South Africa in that even as apartheid worsens, he keeps going back to South Africa and he mm -hmm. he sort of, I don't want to say he makes it up like as he's, he makes it up, makes it up as he goes. So he also sort of adapts to all sort of the mm -hmm. vagaries of, uh, the white football union, the apartheid state, and how it tries mm. to manage its isolation. Like, you know, mm. he starts a black team, he makes the tours with them in Brazil. Like, he just, mm -hmm. he just has an interesting uh, relationship with South Africa, which implicates him also in, in apartheid, right? Absolutely. I mean, Stanley Matthews, as I said, come, comes out to South Africa from 1955 onwards. He, he, he plays in these... Uh, guest matches. So he plays for Rangers, Johannesburg Rangers, the oldest uh, white soccer club um, uh, in, 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 in Johannesburg. He plays for the Wanderers Football Club. He plays in these exhibition matches and he continues to be associated with white football for as long as his, um, his legs hold. In other words, for as long as he can play. He plays well into his late 40s, early 50s, but he's no longer able to play anymore. So he turns his hand to management and He'd had um, not very successful spells and, and complicated spells at Port Vale in Britain. And as a result, he was not considered a, a worthy, if you like, coach or manager of white football. And what he does is he starts to look for opportunities in black football. So he, he shows an interest in black football for the first time in the early 1970s. And as a result, he actually puts together a, a team called Sir Stanley Matthews uh, 11. And that's a team of black Soweto teenagers that he trains, sponsored by Coca-Cola uh, and uh, the Sunday Times, and he actually takes them to Brazil in 1976. You know, this is when South Africa is expelled or uh, eventually expelled from FIFA. He takes this black South African team and Joe Havalanche, of course, the, the FIFA boss at the time, says, uh, welcome to Brazil, but I was a bit disappointed your team wasn't mixed. So in other words, Joe Havanagh doesn't quite understand the, the, the complications of South African sport. But what this means is that um, Stanley Matthews, uh, I would argue, goes where the money is. In other words, he played while white South African clubs wanted to, play, wanted to employ him. And um, he handsomely profited from Sunday Times and Coca-Cola money with this, with this sanction-busting tour of black school kids to, to Brazil in 76. 
Wow. So, I mean, that's that's an extremely, extremely fascinating history. I mean, um, all of this is an extremely fascinating history. Um, and I think that to ask a, uh, another question related to that is that there's all of these other players that come as these mm -hmm. guest players for all of these different teams. And you've put together sort of uh, a starting 11 of all of these players that have come over the years to South Africa. Um, so do you want to talk us through that starting 11? I think it's an, it's a fascinating 11 because I think a lot of people will be surprised to discover just who yeah. was in South Africa during apartheid. So who were some of these, these all-stars that you would, um, that you've included and, and why these names in particular? Okay. Well, hopefully the, hopefully, um, the image will go. appear. There we go. Um, Hopefully people recognize that what I've done here is we've taken the Panini sticker series, which of course is for every World Cup, and we I've superimposed these photographs of this British and Irish eleven. The top left-hand corner, of course, is uh, Roy Hodgson, who is the manager of this uh, of this team that I've selected. Roy Hodgson um, comes out to South Africa and is a school teacher, history school teacher in Pretoria, and he's involved uh, with Berea Football Club in uh, in Pretoria. But you have. Um, other players there. Obviously, you have Stanley Matthews, the bottom right-hand corner. You have Bobby Charlton, uh, of course. You have Alan Ball. You have Roger Hunt, and these are all World Cup winners uh, in uh, 1966 with England. You have Budgie Byrne, who is the second from bottom on the on the second um, from right on the bottom line. He actually goes out to 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 Cape Town, and he. Um, plays and coaches Hellenic in the Whites Only National Football League. And through his association with English football, of course, Budgie Burns was uh, a West Ham player. He was also an England international. He brings players such as Gordon Banks, Bobby Moore, uh, Bobby Charlton, Alan Ball, et cetera, over to uh, South Africa who play on these guests, uh, who play as these guest players in the National Football League. I think one of the most, the, probably the most fascinating for me of all these players is the chap right in the middle, and that is George Best. Now, George Best was, of course, a, the Manchester United uh, uh, player and a Northern Irish international who comes out in 1976. He comes out to play in a much smaller team in Johannesburg known as the Jewish Guild. So Jewish Guild team in Balfour in, um, in Johannesburg. And he's actually sponsored by Datsun. So Datsun sponsors his uh, visit to South Africa. So that's that's the starting 11 with the manager I'd select, but there are a number of substitutes. And I think we can think of Kevin Keegan, for example, who uh, comes out to, to Cape Town in 1978. He's actually sponsored by a mobile um, oil company. So you have this very close association between um, international capital with South African uh, branches or South African uh, uh, offices sponsoring uh, these players to come out to uh, to South Africa. Um, so when we talk about a European Super League, I think what hopefully what some of this illustrates is that money has always been part of, uh, of football and particularly in the case of uh, South African football um, uh, here. So I have, a, I have, we have one more question before we bring in our friend Tony Karen, um, which is there's the question of the spectators. So this is a a lot of this football, as we're describing it here, is very much kind of what in South Africa people would have called white football, right? Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. it's not the case, and I know you've written about this. This game, this 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 uh, NFL, when it, when it runs from '59, I think till '77, it's probably one of the most popular spectator sports mm -hmm. in South Africa. 
and there's lots of black fans who goes to these games and i'm curious Absolutely. just sort of like how they you know how they interact with this as fans like what is their relationship mm -hmm. to this mm -hmm. league because i know that mm -hmm. and i've read you've written about uh, Durban city when a something like i don't think it was like three or four buses are going up to joburg so they can go play mm -hmm. jewish guild uh in in the final mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. you know so just a little bit about the fact that they're this is definitely white football but they have black fans and maybe absolutely get into that a bit yeah yeah, well, I, you know, Kaiser Matong, I interviewed Kaiser Matong, who, of course, is the founder of uh, uh, Kaiser Chiefs. Um, he told me that when he was a youngster, he would go watch Highlands Park uh, play at the Belfort Ground, which is where Jewish Guild played. And um, he, was, he, he reminded me that he sat in segregated stands and he watched players uh, such as Willie McIntosh, a, a former Scottish international. He watched him play in South Africa, but only got to play with him when he went to Atlanta Chiefs in 1967, 1968. So yes, you had a number of uh, black fans uh, attending uh, whites, uh, white only matches, uh, is sitting in segregated uh, uh, stands. Durban also very, very interesting. Durban City, for example, Durban United had literally thousands of spectators some of the cup final data we have is that you'd have train loads of of uh, black south africans going up to uh the final at the rand stadium um fascinating also you have football programs if you think of the football programs that we that we we buy when we attend football matches um you would have uh, a football program for durban durban city for example they would have a non-European section in the football program. So you'd have non-European supporters uh, speaking about issues confronting uh, uh, their team. And then the following page, you'd have the European supporters section. So while this was, uh, while we did have black support of these uh, of these white clubs, it was strictly and, and, and clearly through the lens of apartheid. It was segregated. Uh, these players, these these black uh, supporters, could never play for any of these clubs. They only played in the, in the late 1970s, but during the height of the NFL in the 1960s, it was it was really apartheid in place. And I just want to ask a quick question because I think people might be wondering. There is definitely during this period there was a very vibrant uh black professional league i think it's absolutely the late, late 60s till the early 70s um that absolutely. was sort of running at the same time as this mm -hmm. professional league. can you just say a little bit about that and just as a yeah, the, point, what happens to the nfl when the nfl fell 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 27 they goes they go to play with some of the black teams in a league Mm -hmm. The South African Soccer League is the is the equivalent of the National Football League established in 1961, and they are very important in Johannesburg. And the National Football League is instrumental in closing them down uh, because the the National Football League is trying to control professional football across across uh, South Africa. So you have a vibrant football league, black professional football league. You also have in the 1970s you have the Federation. Uh, uh, a professional league emerging, which has a real SACOS aligned anti-apartheid stance, which is very, very important. But 1977, when the National Football League, as we know it, folds, many of the sides join the National Professional Soccer League, which essentially is the Black Professional uh, Football League, still racial, but black uh, essentially. And some of the clubs, such as Durban City, for example, join the uh, Federation Professional League. This, of course, all merges in 1986 into the National Soccer League, as we know, through people such as Abdul uh, Bamji. So white football, when it's when it's uh, expelled from FIFA in 1976, has to look 
to to black football to to really save it in many ways and i think that's that's exactly what what it did yeah this is you mentioned abdul bamzi we 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 cannot <laughs> get into the into the abdul bamzi Cyril Kuebers, urban causa kaiser motaung super league idea of the late <laughs> Like the NSL is their Super League when they break away from the MPSL. And then, as I always remind they make SAFA. They are the, the mm -hmm. SAFA of the day. But in any case, um, stick around, Chris. We want to welcome uh, uh, back a previous guest on, on Africa's a Country Talk, which is Tony Karen. Uh, uh, he's, he's, he teaches um, pol the politics of global soccer at the New School in New York, and he's an editorial lead on, on AJ+. Plus. And I, I wanted to just ask Tony, before we talk about that other big subject, which is that all of us talk about the European Super, Super League, um, Tony, what mem uh, you, you, you and I always talk about this, and you've told me that you have memories of growing up in Cape Town and, and remembering this league. And I think you even, you may have gone to games. Yeah, when, when I was very young, um, I had these older stepbrothers. They were like six years older than me, <coughs> who were very into the game they used to have the albums of the soccer cards you know like the panini cards but like these you know it was like a 20 team league full of like you know vic lovell the cape town city keeper i just remember these these cards and, and the names of the teams like arcadia shepherds and uh power lines and hips sonia i don't know what that even meant obviously corinthians and so it was like this this whole world of like uh you know and then sometimes we would go to hartley vale to to Greenpoint Stadium, Hellenic, on a Friday night. Although we were Cape Town City supporters, supposedly. I didn't really know why or, or what that meant. And then the game was kind of around us. I mean, actually, it was funny because you mentioned Kevin Keegan. And that by then, I was like already a dedicated Red. I embraced Liverpool 1974, listening on BBC World Service to the FA Cup final, Liverpool-Newcastle. And that was Keegan's game. <clears throat> and I'm like, OK, all my friends were Leeds United supporters. Um, I'm like, Liverpool. Anyway, I mean, that's just uh, bizarre because we're not even seeing that. And then little, I know what Sean wants me to talk about. So like, we don't see these games, right? We listen to them on the radio, except in Cape Town, there is a brothel in the center of Cape Town <laughs> called the White House Hotel. And this, this, there's a, there's a metaphor in there. There's a metaphor in there, but let's exactly. <laughs> and the guy who owns this figures out that there's a huge market among us politically unreliables, right? Like when I'm at school, they won't even let us play soccer. That's the game of like the politically unreliable white people. Like it's Jews, Portuguese, Greeks, Italians, like German, Dutch, whatever. You not we can't count on you and we can't count on you when you know things go down like you're not really rooted in the folk right they play rack and i mean we were told rugby is you know the the regime's game and you want to play soccer do it on the playground but we're not going to let you play formally but of course all of us like from those various immigrant strands in particular we could get on a bus and go to town to I, I was in Milneton. I grew up in Milneton. You get on a bus you pay, and you go to the White House Hotel and you pay your two rand. And there, like the owner of this brothel has figured out this revenue stream. He gets tapes, VHS tapes of match of the day and big match flown in every Sunday night into South Africa. So for the next week, you can watch the previous weekend's English games. And that's when we start to see like where you can actually see games and of course you know you see the sex workers coming by with their clients and that's like another education um 
but yeah, I mean, so in that, I mean, I have, a, I have, a, I have this quick question because I know we want to talk about the Super League just at the end here to just kind of because I want to get both of your views on what this means and what it's all about. But I want to ask quickly: um, Is it the fact that in South Africa there is this silence about that football, and and there's always like when you go into South African football, you see it all looks so confusing. That might explain why, for example, now in Britain, when it came out that Roy Hodgson played there, when people sort of hear that, oh, Kevin Keegan played there, Jack Charlton went there till 79 and so on. Do you think it's the it's the fact that within South Africa, nobody talks about this, that league and that time and all this kind of, it, it all just became like one big soup of, we don't know what went on there. Uh, it might also explain why there's this kind of silences about that history between England and, and South Africa when it comes to football? That's a question for Chris. Well, he's the I, 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 interviewed, I interviewed Peter Hayne a few years ago. Peter Hayne, of course, uh, Lord Hayne, who was crucial in uh, the 1970 Stop the 70s tour to Britain. He went to the, he lived actually two streets away from where I lived. He's 20 years older than me. So he went to the same primary school as me, played for the, went to the same high school, went to the same, played for the same football club, Arcadia Shepherds. And I posed this question to him. I said, why didn't you focus on any of the footballers or football tours uh, to uh, South Africa? And he said to me, they just didn't know. So in other words, the focus, which we can, we can take either way, the focus of the anti-apartheid struggle in Britain when it came to sport was definitely in relation to cricket and, uh, and rugby tours. I think we've also got to remember that ask any white South African what their thoughts are about apartheid. Nobody supported apartheid. Of course they didn't. That's their, their immediate response. So people don't want to talk about this history because we're all complicit and we're all implicated in, uh, in, in, in very intimate ways. I, I just I want to throw one extra thought in there and it's you know it's a little bit extraneous but I think that and I mean I totally agree it was very confusing pictures someday I want Chris to explain to me what Jarzinho was doing in South Africa in 1972 because <laughs> I vaguely remember that but I can't I can't contact Roberto Rivellino but uh -huh. um, what I want to, what I do think is really interesting is if you go back to the late 80s in South Africa Right, the only white people going into Soweto are right, please, white comrades of the movement, right, who are going in to do activist work, and a small handful of Jimmy Jubert, Noel Cousins, like basically white working class footballers who come from communities whose politics is a million miles away from the comrades, much closer probably to the right police actually. Mm -hmm. But they are the first white South Africans mm -hmm. outside of a political context who are working for black bosses. Like to Absolutely. me, that's really profound. That, that, that's like mm -hmm. accepting a South Africa that's very different from mm -hmm. one in which they are the power and the privilege. Just a mm -hmm. thought. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Will, because I know we, we're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to I wanna know, we should do a follow-up to this about the history, but I mean, to think about the Super League now, which I think, think about the Super League now is very different to thinking about the Super League before the show, because, Chris, I think you've helped us understand just how moneyed interests have been a cornerstone of football and how there's all of these attempts throughout history to form breakaway leagues, to exert control 
over how football is organized so that you can have power consolidated in your favor. So against the backdrop of the conversation that we've had now and looking at this attempt by super clubs in Europe to try and form this breakaway Super League, I suppose my question to the two of you is, what do you make of it? Do you think this is, is something, uh, is, is a noteworthy shift? Is this something that's going to succeed? Or is it one of those things where, as I was saying earlier, this one might not succeed, but there's going to be a repeat attempt sometime down the line once more? I think I think you're absolutely right there. Well, this is this is not surprising. Uh, we've we've heard we've known about these kinds of discussions uh, for a number of years, um, and of course, I am like with the majority of football fans, totally opposed to these uh, uh, suggestions. Particularly living in the United States, trying to support a football club such as LA Galaxy, where they have a really bad season, they won't be relegated, which is just crazy for me. But that's another discussion in itself. What I would remind, what I'd like, what I what it would suggest is consider the expansion of the FIFA World Cup. Consider uh, the, uh, the the Premier League established in 1992. Consider when the European Cup was established in 1955. These were all suggestions at the time, which were uh, which were frowned upon, which. Uh, people were very concerned about exactly as we we're concerned about this uh, European Super League. So I would encourage people to look at this historically um, and uh, make make decisions on that basis. As I say, I am against these proposals, but I think there's historical precedent for these kinds of moneyed uh, interests and suggestions uh, historically in, in, in world football. I do think that you know, this is something we've watched this development, particularly since the 90s, of uh, the neoliberal era, right, where everything is a commodity and you have the game is being transfer, transformed in terms of ownership into this kind of something that basically favors these kind of either you have oligarchs and who, who are vanity investors, which is actually if you're a football club, you want your owner to be not seeking to run it as a business, but seeking to run it for bragging rights. So you can have Abramovich running Chelsea because he wants to win things and, you know, because his profits are coming from elsewhere. Similarly, the owners of Manchester City, for example. But if you, once you start to have business interests, trying to run a club as a business, this is almost a logical outcome. Because as, as they say, you know, hey, we've, uh, we can't operate. It's almost like this is business wanting a social safety net for themselves like we've invested in this so we don't want a situation where the market as it were the competition means we could actually uh lose 100 million pounds next year because we're not in the champions league like that's not acceptable from a business point of view and they don't care about the game they absolutely don't care about the game they, they'll say that this is about this is a business proposition and it's almost like the, the Premier League set the, set the scene for this. UEFA completely encouraged it. You think about it, when did UEFA ever apply its financial fair play rules? It's like no, they let this, UEFA is corrupt and venal, all of those things, and the Premier League is you know was turned into this you know this monster. But we have to start somewhere. Maybe some of those things are vehicles that people like us and everywhere who care about the game start to use as vehicles for a fight back because uh you know we've been asleep frankly we've watched the game transform more and more into this kind of wall street uh, monstrosity that we we see now and at the same time you know i used to believe and i probably still do that 
the reason the English Premiership, for example, has can get so much money for its TV rights is because not simply the quality of the game, because there's probably more quality football sometimes in Spain, for example, before at least early on, you know, before the money let them bring so many of the you know top players. But what was being sold for the Eng for English Premiership was a spectacle. And that spectacle is the chemistry of what's going on in the field and the fans in the stadium. And you think about all the ads that get used to, you know, they always pump up the sound, the roar, right? And that for me always sensed that the fans had power. That if the fans, I remember Liverpool fans walked out in the 70th minute a few years ago to try to push back and the owners backed down on a ticket price increase because you need the fans in the stadium to create that chemistry. COVID has really given these people the sense that, okay, we can put fake sound and we can still sell the TV rights. And so maybe, you know, this is like uh, chaos is a ladder, as Littlefinger says on Game of Thrones, you know, like they, they, quick, disaster capitalism. Yeah, I have a quick last, yeah. last question, which is, um, is, 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 the, is our fate that we then always have to rely on, on FIFA and UEFA to kind of like save the game for us? Because my, my, my theory is, and again, I can be proven wrong by the end of the week, but I sort of feel that people underestimate the power of FIFA, even how corrupt it is. Uh, in this case, well, FIFA is the, as the world body, and then um, UEFA as the continental body, this, this kind of threat that they're making and saying, you know, you won't play in the World Cup. And I, I think I saw something from UEFA yesterday saying to the, the three teams that are part of the 15, um, you are not if you, if you if you if you if you if you join this group you're not playing in the in the in the Champions League semifinals you know this sort of thing so i'm kind of curious is is it fifa that's always going to save us uh, no we're going to save ourselves i mean the thing is is fifa going to be a vehicle can we put enough pressure on fifa what does fifa care about it cares about its advertisers Right, mm -hmm. like if you think about, remember the decorrupting of FIFA, or to the extent that it happened, driven by yeah. Americans, driven by mm -hmm. Americans because the investors are all American, uh, credit card companies, Coca-Cola, beer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, civil society pressure on advertisers, pressure on FIFA. So it's still going to be up to us. It's like if, if you know, if we were complacent about this, this would go ahead. It's like, I mean. You can't trust FIFA and UEFA to follow their own instincts and do the right thing. They have to feel the heat from the fans and the players and the own and the managers. Comrade Klopp. <laughs> you have the last word. Yeah, I think I, I think Tony's absolutely right there. I mean, it's the fans that have to have to push uh, have to push the owners, the players themselves, and as some of the tweets that you've been highlighting, Henderson, of course, of of Liverpool. I think it's absolutely crucial that the players push the uh, uh the clubs because as fans we are the ones that are, are are consuming this product and if it means we have to turn off our televisions then or burn our football shirts and we may just have to go that route i'm afraid i i think that's the best the best way to conclude and you know I, I oh yeah sure I'll, mine's not far away i'll, I'll get a lighter and we can have a little party hopefully i can burn the house down but um <laughs> maybe that could be part of the exclusive content for the fans but i mean thinking about what we were saying earlier um hopefully you know this moment of just increased consciousness about how you know financial interests 
destroy the things we care about in life. Hopefully this actually spurs on social consciousness. It's usually the other way around where social consciousness spurs consciousness in football, but maybe football, be, football can be a vehicle to, to other things in society. But on that note, thank you very much to, to both of our guests, to Chris Bolzman, to, to Tony Karen, to my lovely as ever co-host Sean Jacobson, Antoinette Engel. As we conclude the show, I just wanted to, to share with everyone I mentioned earlier that there's been a devastating fire where Antoinette is in, in Cape Town that has destroyed some of the Jagger Library at UCT. So there's a link available to people to, if you're a scholar or an academic or any kind of researcher who might have spent time at the African Studies Library to help rebuild the library's collection, to put in your information, whatever details uh, you have, uh, so that some of these precious, precious archival materials, which some of them might be lost forever, hopefully they can be recovered because even if some of that stuff hadn't been digitized before, maybe you and your private research were able to collect some of that material. So if you're able to fill this form in wherever you are, please share it around and help rebuild this library that I think is crucial to, to all of the work that, that we as part of Africa as a country do. And um, on that note, thank you to everyone once again. And we'll see you next week.